cliffcentral.com. So we're going to start something new this morning, which I'm extremely happy to introduce to you now. Uh, this is, of course, something which I've been talking about doing for a long, long time. And this morning, J.J. Cornish joins us. He is a journalist, editor, authoritative commentator on African affairs. And as Pumi says, he doesn't just give you the news. He gives it to you in a funny and interesting way, like very few people these days can do. And it's so great to have you on, J.J., for the first in our Africanalysis feature, which will be coming to you regularly here on cliffcentral.com. It's very nice to see you, J.J. How are you? Delighted to be with you. Delighted to be with you all. Very good. So let's get straight to it because I know that you are uh, brimming over with stories from all over Africa. So let's talk a little bit about Sudan. Apparently, they've been on the U.S. terrorism list for a long time, and they they may be coming off of that. Good news for Sudan. (laughs) Very good news for Sudan, and God knows they need it. Uh, Since the fall of Omar al-Bashir a year ago, they've had turmoil. But they do now have this mixture of military and civilian in their government. They have uh, the transitional government leading to elections. Now, Omar al-Bashir was a hardliner. And uh, he, for example, sheltered uh, Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. And and they've been on that terrorism list since 1993. Now, that means that they don't get access to the United States, so Sudanese officials can't visit there, their families can't visit, they don't get loans. It's altogether a tough thing. They had a plane come down, I remember, and they said, well, the reason why the plane came down is we weren't able to buy spares for it. Uh, you know, that was in the in the middle 90s. Now, they've moved more and more since the fall of Omar al-Bashir uh, to remove them from the list. And today, the head of the ruling council, who's uh, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, he's in the United Arab Emirates. Now, the United Arab Emirates, of course, is very much a front runner for Donald Trump at the moment and making mm-hmm. peace in the Middle East. And they're talking about uh, removing Sudan from the list. We did have the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, there uh, just last week. Uh, he's talking about it, too. Uh, they really have to do this as soon as possible because they're in a pile of state economically. They've moved on Darfur. They're even talking possibly about sending Omar al-Bashir to the International Criminal Court where he's been indicted for crimes against humanity in Darfur. So Sudan's straining every sinew to get back into favor with the United States. Now, what is it going to mean when, if the government changes, will uh, the uh, government of Joe Biden be as understanding. Uh, certainly, Donald Trump likes to say he do- he deals with the bad guys and the tough guys mm. a lot better than he does with the good guys, and that might be while they're pushing why they're pushing so hard. It also might mean that anything he does on Sudan takes away uh, his mismanagement of the COVID crisis, and so it's a it's a it's a good ruse for him. In, at this election time. So, JJ, just quickly, you mentioned Omar al-Bashir, and there was a lot of controversy some time ago when he came here to South Africa and he was meant to be arrested for crimes against humanity. But what eventually happened to him? Because you say, you know, he's fallen from grace, he's fallen from power. But is he still living um, happily in, in Sudan, carrying on with his life and, and not being pursued by the, the Hague? Or what's going on there? Well, it's for corruption. But it is one of those sort of country club prisons. You know, it's not a very tough regime. And he's got, he's got further charges awaiting him. But they have, as I said, talked very openly about possibly sending him to The Hague to face trial. Okay. 
All right, so let's turn our attention to stuff that I think many people have been thinking about during the COVID crisis. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, um, have been very involved in giving guidelines to countries and helping countries here in Africa to uh, to prepare themselves for COVID-19. And, and one of the interesting things that's happened around this is that there are certain countries that have kind of broken the rules and have done their own thing. Uh, Tanzania comes to mind. There was a controversial uh, experiment that was carried out by the Tanzanian president. He said that it would be a good idea to test out the uh, the COVID tests that we're all doing on goats and on mangoes and all kinds of other things. And they came up with more or less the same results as they might have with humans. But the WHO has got involved in a different matter, and they've said that they're testing out some African remedies, right? Yes, indeed. You know, the most controversial of these remedies was that in Madagascar, Andre Rogelina's. Uh, it was, it's in fact uh, using herbs that have fought malaria in the past, and he used that. Mm. Now, uh, it's all very well to draw, pull your nose up at it, but a lot of African leaders sent planes to go and fetch bottles and bottles of this remedy. And when the WHO said this was not efficacious at all, uh, Andre Rogelina, the former disc jockey, who now heads up that island state, said, well, I mean, if it was a white remedy, uh, I'm sure you'd uh, approve of it. But it happens to be an African remedy, so you are being beastly about it. Now the uh, World Health Organization is empowering uh, African medicos and saying, okay, let's test these. Yesterday we did have this country signing up for the vaccine, countries except for China and the United States. Now, so empowering the African uh, doctors and scientists is all very well. Uh, this is just as we've had 30 million infections around the world and uh, nearly a million deaths, 957,000 deaths. We have 1.3 million cases in Africa and 53,000 deaths. You, do you remember at the beginning when we were told that Africa was going to be the hardest hit? Yep. Well, it's the least hardest hit, and we've got to ask why this is. It certainly isn't because of the African remedies, that's for sure. But the, to, to play it more fairly, the World Health Organization is now saying, okay, let's test it. But science is going to be the, the only standard. We have to have the sole basis for any remedy for COVID-19 has to be science. That's bad news again for the American president who wants to, what, goggle with bleach and, uh, <laughs> well, and, yeah. and 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 take other medicines, right? Pumi, you wanted to ask something. I don't want to ask anything, but I'm just very intrigued. It's uh, you know the the way that we we look at at medication and medicine and healing, and the way that today there is a, a clear understanding that emotional has as much of a play as the physical in what makes a person sick. That's why we all understand that stress can be such a big killer, right? Mm-hmm. But about, a, you know, 100 or so years ago, the idea of your emotions having a play at how you feel in your body was such an, an unacceptable point of view because there, there was no way that they could measure it scientifically. And now with changes in neuroscience and kind of advancements, we understand it and accept it. And I just find it always so fascinating, the things that we are willing to say, 
no, we're not going to look at this because in the basis of science, it it has no basis in science. A yeah. hundred years later, it suddenly does have a basis in science. And of course, so the, it'll be very fascinating to see. Uh, the placebo effect, people have been studying this too. And also, if people believe that, uh, that, that some kind of medicine, which is given to them by the people they trust, will make them feel better, sometimes that, that actually does have that effect. But, but I mean, at the moment, John, if, if we look at... If, if we look at some of the articles that we've seen in the New York Post, in the BBC even, you know, where some of, <laughs> I, I read a couple of weeks ago where they said maybe it's poverty that has allowed Africa to uh, escape the, the coronavirus the way that it has. And all of those things, for me, are always just... It's searching for answers. They don't have answers, you know. Effect. Could it be the, the the way we have fought malaria, the way we have fought Ebola, mm-hmm. uh, the poverty, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I'm reading at the moment or rereading Albert Camus' book, The Plague, written about mm-hmm. the plague in Iran back in the 1947 or published in 1947. Uh-huh. Absolutely fascinating to see how when they close the city, the people respond. Uh, how people respond to the plague, how the authorities try to deny the fact that there is this plague, how the church moves in and says this is the wrath of God being visited upon you. It's an absolutely fascinating book. Uh, it's one of his best, you know, Albert Camus, just uh, a fascinating read. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. But remember the controversy over testing Africans for the remedies and the two doctors who said, well, we'd better test Africans because, and certainly African prostitutes, because those are people who are not uh, putting up the defenses uh, that might uh, affect the the tests or Mm. might affect the results of tests. Mm. And they then had to eat humble pie and they were castigated by the president. But the fact is, if we do want to test the vaccine, we have to test it on Africans to see that it is efficacious. So, Jean-Jacques, there are a few political things going on, too, that we need to talk about because they're closer to home than many people would like them to be. And and these have to do with the jihadists in Mozambique. Uh, we've spoken a little bit about the, the gas and the rubies, but perhaps you can enlighten us on that front. What's going on in Mozambique? You know, they, they're talking about the, the curse of the gas and the rubies in Mozambique, just as they talk about the curse of oil in Nigeria and Angola because it leads to corruption. It leads to uh, the, this enormous wealth that should be accumulated simply doesn't go down to the people. Now, what has happened in Mozambique? They've had something like 6% GDP growth for the last 15 years. But has that got down to the ordinary people? Not a bit of it. And they have the largest gas resources or, or reserves in Africa, up in Cabo Delgado, right in the north, you know, it's this very, very long country, yes. Mozambique, and, and it hasn't got to the people. So that is why the jihadis, uh, Ansar al-Sunnah, are doing so well. They're saying we're not benefiting from this, just as we have the separatists in Nigeria doing very well on the basis of that. And they've taken the town of, uh, the port of Mosimbo de, la, de, uh, de Payo, and they took that a month ago, and they haven't managed uh, the government hasn't managed to regain it. Hmm. The fact is, though, people are saying, uh, good analysts are saying that SADC needs to get more involved. And others are saying, even more importantly, that South Africa needs to get more involved. Well, I think for South Africa to get involved off its own bat, militarily, in uh, the uh, in the area called uh, Cabo Delgado, would be a huge mistake. It would yeah. be the 
Afghanistan for for the United for 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 Russia. It'll be you know Vietnam for the United States. We should never get involved unilaterally. We need if we do get involved militarily. Uh, we have to do it as part of a regional force. And let's be honest that Mo- Mozambique's um, government are hardly the kind of people who you would invite to your dinner party. These are not strong leaders in the first place. And second of all, maybe they deserve to lose control. Of course, the concern here being that a bunch of uh, jihadi militants are hardly the right people to lose anything to because invariably it goes badly for local people. But what kind of... What kind of government are we even talking about in, in Mozambique at the moment? Are they worthy of our friendship and respect? The issue is this is the country on our border. So what, it, what happens here is of cardinal interest to us. And if they, it doesn't work, people will simply come across the, United, the, the Kruger National Park mm-hmm. into South Africa, as they have been doing. You know, Gareth, I was the first South African journalist allowed back into Mozambique. 1976, I went there for... Uh, a meeting, a United Nations meeting. I was a UN correspondent at the time mm-hmm. on the solidarity with the people of Zimbabwe, Namibia, and we still called it Azania at that time because the PAC was holding sway at the United Nations. And, uh, you know, that's why I interviewed Robert Mugabe at that point and said that he was one of the more impressive leaders I'd ever met, which is something that I've never been able to live down. Uh, <laughs> I remember the fights between... Uh, between uh, the, the PAC and the ANC delegates, it was very, very interesting. And then I returned, once I returned to South Africa in the early 80s or mid-80s, I also went back to Mozambique, went back to that fantastic, huge marketplace in the middle of Maputo where they had nothing. They had a table with some lemons on it in that three-block marketplace. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The thing about it, though, that one couldn't deny was that the country was governed by these people who were dirt poor. It was the poorest nation on the planet. Yeah. But they were uncorrupted. They were not corrupted. Well, sadly, that has changed. And they have become very, very corrupt. And, um, well, we have now a, a government there that cannot cannot hold the ring militarily in Cabo Delgado. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying for a moment that uh, the... Parties are take Solia, you know, where you have uh, Al Shabab moving in and out. You know, it's uh, hit and run operations. Well, their taking of the port, of course, uh, has been a longer thing and has been more of a headache. But the only answer that they can come up with is that they need military assistance. And when they look around for military assistance, and that happens all over Africa, where do they look to? But the chaps in boots down in South Africa, and that is the danger point. That if we feel well, we've got to secure our neighbour. We're going to send the boots in. We could pay a very, very heavy price for doing that. Yeah, considering especially considering especially how heavy most of the people in our military are, and I mean in terms of weight, and not particularly fearsome as a fighting force. But we'll leave that for another day. Dude, the good news is that we don't have a strong military. It's the only good news we have in South Africa right now, actually, is that we don't have we don't have the leadership in the military and we don't have the manpower. Well, they may have boots, but they can't they can't take anything up there. Ranjak, you talk about uh, Zimbabwe and uh, Mugabe being such a an impressive leader. I mean, there, there was a running joke in Zimbabwe for a long time that if they were ever to, to come across into South Africa, they'd have breakfast in Harare and they'd have lunch in Pretoria because it was such a walkover. You're not by any chance Angolan, are you, Pumi? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, you know, because this, this, sounds like the, this sounds like the 
the military equivalent of the battle between Western Province and the Blue Bulls, you know. <laughs> the, the Angolans will tell you that they are the primary force in, in Africa. The South Africans bridle at that. Uh, but uh, the oh, look, it's, <laughs> there's, it's, 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 uh, I wouldn't want to live on the difference. But you're right. I mean, so many of our uh, soldiers are HIV positive. We cannot muster enough people to monitor uh, to 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 send our peacekeeping mm-hmm. forces as we would like to but the fact is uh weak as it is compromised as it is it is still probably the biggest military or the strongest military on the continent not saying much for the military on the continent at all well you are our heavyweight in terms of analysis on the continent of africa and jean-jacques just uh, proving that by telling us about his own story of being the first journalist back into mozambique all those years ago this is the reason that we are thrilled to have you on jj cornish is a journalist and editor and authoritative commentator on Africa, and this morning he is here to give us an Africa analysis, which is brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School. These guys are really, really doing some amazing work, and they work uh, on, on education throughout Africa. They're actually uh, tremendously interested in, in Africa from the point of view that many of us are, that this is this is where the action is for all of us. And the Johannesburg Business School, smart enough to, to figure out that uh, JJ is one of those people to listen to if you want to understand our immediate environment a little bit better. JJ, it's a pleasure to see you, and we will see you again very shortly with another one of these. This is all mine.